John is a godly man. He had pastored and helped plant a church in uh, Manchester, England, which is a large metropolitan area before God called him to rural church planting. And we're honored to have him bring uh, the word this morning. So, John, come. Thank you, David. It's a, a delight for me to be here. Um, when we were looking to move down to Norfolk to plant, our church in Manchester gave us um, a month sabbatical. And my wife and I, we had friends who had a house in rural Wisconsin. So we, we went there and we met with Acts 29 church planters in, in Wisconsin and we learnt and we had coffee and we shared our hopes. And, and we, yeah, they taught us so much. Uh, so my, my church planting journey into rural planting, um, a part of that was in the rural United States. So it's delightful to be back um, in the US here in Oregon. It's our first time in Oregon. It's beautiful. Um, thank you for having us. I'm going to pray as we open God's Word together. So let's pray. Gracious Father, in your mercy, would you send your Spirit that my words would point to your Son, that our eyes would be fixed on him, and that our hearts would thrill with, with his glory, with love and faith and joy and hope, as we consider together the task that you have set before us. We want to be those who set our hand to the plow, who do not look back, and who plow the furrow that you have set for us. So would you use this time now to that end, to the salvation of souls in rural parts of the world, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. About a year ago, I um, rang a friend of mine. Uh, he's, he's a guy called Tom. He's a farmer. Um, and I rang him, and, and as I spoke to him, he was in um, his tractor, and he was sowing seed. I don't remember what kind of seed. And he asked me to pray. He said, John, we've got to sow. This is the last day we can sow, but there is not enough rain. Um, he said, we've, we've used all the water in our pond. We've got no more water for irrigation. He said, if it doesn't rain in the next week, the crop will fail. But if I don't sow, there'll be no crop. And, and so I prayed, and the Lord in his mercy sent the rain, and, and they had a harvest. And it, it made me realize just how similar his work is to ours. If, if the Lord doesn't send the rain, there will be no harvest. We are dependent in what we do. And it got me thinking along a, a kind of line of, have we lost something of what the Bible calls us to be? And, and what I mean is this, um, as a church planter, I, I tend to think of myself maybe as an entrepreneur. Um, when we planted in Manchester, it's a large city in the north of England, uh, a business center, uh, a cultural center. And, and I read books um, that were, were Christian books written by Christian business people uh, about how you grow, how you start, how you multiply things. Um, and, and talking to other church planters, there's a lot of that. We, we read business books, and we learn lessons. Um, and that's not wrong. In Scripture, there's, there's the parable of the, the servants with debt. There's the parable of the dishonest manager. Christ tells the parable of the talents. The Bible has administrators like Daniel 
Um, it has business people like Lydia. But it has far more shepherds. Abel was a shepherd. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah and his brothers, they were shepherds. Moses was not equipped to lead God's people in God's eyes until he had served 40 years as a shepherd. David was taken from caring for the flocks to shepherd the Lord's people Israel. It is shepherds, not business people, that sit at the center of God's plans. But I've not read any books by shepherds. And I think maybe I've got that wrong. We are rural pastors, rural church planters, elders in rural churches, members of rural churches. We see orchards and cornfields. We see that the combine harvesters at work, we see the shepherds bringing their flocks in. And, and I, I want it to be that when I see uh, a farmer harvesting his field, I think of the day when the Lord will return and all will be gathered in. I want it to be that when I see the guys out sowing the beet crops around us, that I think, yes, you sow and you are utterly dependent on the Lord sending rain. That is what I do. I want it to be that when I see a shepherd um, in the, the storms and the rain out with his flocks, I want to think, yes, that is my calling. I am, when the, when the storm lashes down, my place is with the sheep. I, I want to think that way. If I see a, an orchard of trees, I want my mind to think one day there was a tree of life and there was a tree of good and evil and Adam and Eve picked the wrong fruit. But there was another day when our God was hoisted on a tree and he paid for their sin and he paid for my sin. And there will be a tree of life standing on both sides of the river in the city of God. That's where I want my mind to go. And I think we have a huge blessing as rural church planters. When I was in the city, I saw the shops and the businesses. I saw the concrete. I saw the bricks. I didn't see those things. My mind went more naturally to the world of business. But out in the fields and the orchards around where we live, my mind goes more naturally to these Bible pictures. And, and I think we can enjoy this theology. We can let the Lord teach us day by day as we drive through the countryside, as we talk to the farmers in our churches, as we understand their work. The Lord is helping us to see our work. And I also think this is something we can give back to the city churches. You know, this is a theology that is not only for rural guys. This is the Bible. And, and if we can help city churches to understand that they are flocks before they are businesses, that, that they, they are sowing seed rather than franchising an operation, if, if we can help them to see that, then we can bless them. This, this is not a one-way street. I think sometimes we look to the city and think, wow, they have so much resource. And we love it when they bless us, and they should, and we should be grateful. But we have so much to give back as well. As, as our young people head off to college um, in a city and then get work there, if they could take some of this theology, 
this rich understanding that goes right back to Abel. And if they could bring that into those urban churches, what a blessing. How could we serve them? Um, and, and part of our heart as the Acts 29 rural collective is we have really not wanted to say, you guys in the city, you should repent and move to the country. <laughs> you know, that is, that is ridiculous. There are billions of people who live in cities and we need tens of thousands more faithful churches in the cities of this world. Um, there is no sense in which we want to call guys away from faithful ministry in, in the cities. No, we want to bless them. We want to strengthen their hand, just as we want them to strengthen ours. Um, this is all about partnership. We, we rural guys, we know about partnership because there's not so many of us. So this morning, we're going to um, start off by considering one aspect of this biblical theology of the countryside. And we're going to look at what it means to be a farmhand in the fields of the Lord. And, and hopefully the Lord will bless us and encourage us. And I've just picked out um, a few different aspects of what it means to work in the Lord's harvest field as one of his farmhands. And so please would you turn with me first of all. We're going to look at how the farmhand is dependent. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 5 through to 9. We'll look at how the farmhand is dependent. This picks up on my conversation with Tom. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. God gives the growth, not us. There are church growth books that are based on business techniques and there are useful things in them, but they cannot give the growth. God gives the growth. And, and we know that. We know that it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. We, we are so familiar with that and we should be. But the truth is that we forget it. We will look out on a Sunday and we see our congregation, um, the church I pastor. We have about 35 adults, about 10, 15 children in our membership. Um, and, and it is a small room. And it is so tempting to think, what, what could I do to make this crowd bigger? Um, what techniques could I use? And, and I remember a few years back thinking, and the Lord brought me to a place where I was thinking, well, I'm... I'm not sure the gospel is working, but I am sure that nothing else will. So, so I'm just going to stick with the gospel. I've tried everything else, and Paul tells me it's the power of God under salvation, and, and even if I don't see that, I'm pretty sure nothing else is the power of God under salvation, so I'm just going to keep going. Um, and, and I think it's in some ways easier for us in rural areas because there are techniques that can attract 
believers from someone else's church to my church. But where we are, there isn't another church. There's nowhere, there's no other flock that I can go sheep rustling in. Um, and, and so that temptation is removed. Um, there are techniques that can draw new Christians who, who move into the area, people who've moved into your area for work. And it's a great thing to draw them to your church. I'm not at all critical of that. But where we are, nobody moves there. Um, if I, when we were in Manchester, we grew from a core team of seven to about uh, 50 in the first couple of years. Um, and I think we had uh, one convert in that. Pretty much all the others had moved into the city. They were keen. They were Christians. They wanted to be part of a church plant reaching the last. I was glad to have them. But it looked like pretty, uh, for, for the UK, that, that looks like exciting growth. Uh, in, in Norfolk, first couple of years, we grew from, 10 to, uh, from 12 to 10. A um, couple of years later, there were 15 of us. There was one convert, same number of converts, and it felt tiny. You see, in terms of God's kingdom, we'd seen the same growth. In terms of the church size, I felt like a failure. But, but in God's grace, it meant that we prayed. We prayed for the Lord. We prayed that the Lord would send more workers. Um, there's a guy in church. He's a great guy. He's a very pragmatic, practical man. And he, he, he asked to meet up with me one evening. We went out and had a beer together. And he said, John, I've been thinking we're struggling to take up the opportunities the Lord's given us. This is when there were about, um, about 10 of us. And he said, I, I think, and I was waiting for the plan, he said, I think we should pray. <laughs> And he said, I think we should pray that the Lord would send another five households to join us in the next year. Um, and I couldn't work out whether it was biblical to give the Lord targets. Um, but I figured, well, let's pray. And if it's not biblical, the Lord won't answer. Um, and we sat down a year later and we counted off the five that the Lord had sent. And, and that gave us the, the men and women we needed to reach our community. And, and since then, we've seen a handful saved. As I said, we're not a large church, but we've seen people saved. And it, it made us depend on God. And, and I am grateful because the Lord broke me. He broke a kind of self-reliance, self-dependence that I had unwittingly acquired when I was in Manchester in the city. And it is freedom it is so liberating to think that my call is to be faithful. My call is to sow the seed, to water it as I can, and to trust the Lord to give the spiritual growth, to give the numerical growth as he sees fit in his sovereign purposes and in his good time. I found that to be utterly liberating. Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, not according to the size of the harvest. The Lord sees the late nights that a bivocational church planter spends over his sermon. The Lord sees 
the times when you are visiting with a family that is struggling with a marriage that's in crisis and you are pouring yourself out and you're exhausted and you have nothing left to give and there is no visible fruit. He sees that. The Lord doesn't count the number of people in our churches or the dollars in our budgets. He counts our tears that we shed in ministry. Psalm 58, 56 verse 8. He counts the tossings of sleepless nights when we, are, we can do nothing but pray for, for that guy, for that woman, for that family. He counts our, the number of times we fall on our knees and we've got nothing and we cry out. That is what the Lord counts. And I love it that that is the Lord we serve. He is responsible for the harvest and he calls us to faithfulness. And, and we depend on each other. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Farming in Paul's day was much more labor intensive than it is today. You needed um, a crew to plant the seed, another crew to harvest the crop. It was hard work and a lot of people were involved. Um, church planting today is still as labor intensive as it was in Paul's day. We need a team. We need plural elders. We need a, a church that is family to us. We need to be known in our churches. Um, a year back, I was, I was really struggling over the winter. Um, I was having some really low episodes. Uh, I wasn't in a good place. And I was sharing it with my community group. And one of the men in, in our community group, he said, John, this isn't your problem. This is our problem. Uh, and we need, to, we need to work together on this. Um, my elders, they, they gave me time. They gave me space. I, I was loved by a church family that looked at my weakness and said, we want to be with you in this. We don't expect our pastor to be strong. We expect him to show us Christ and to pick up a cross and we expect him to be weak because we understand sin and we understand humanity. We understand that this is a veil of tears. We, we need to be known. We need to, we need to be together. Jesus Christ served his Father in the power of the Spirit. The only point he did it alone was when he was forsaken on the cross so that we need never be. The Spirit is with us. Christ is our Lord. God is our Father. And he calls us to work together. We, we need each other. We need friends locally. We need to be one. Isolation is deadly in ministry. It's fatal. We, we sometimes see success and we believe the lie of Satan that, that I am the reason for the success. It's my gifts, it's my greatness, it's my personality, it's my looks, it's my charisma. Um, and it destroys us. We want to be the great solo leader. Well, the great, powerful, one by himself in Scripture is Satan. He goes it alone. Our Lord never does. We, we worship a God who is Trinity, three in one. If we want to go it alone, we are walking the path of the father of lies. But more often, more often it just leads to bitter disappointment 
to a sadness and an anger that, that destroys us, that consumes us because we cannot share it, because we won't let others bear our burdens, we won't let others speak the gospel into our lives because we so want to look strong and like we've got it under control and like we're in charge. And we turn to self-medication with alcohol, with drugs, with late-night TV, in the arms of another woman, whatever it might be. We need brothers and sisters. We need fellow laborers because they remind us that we need God. And if, if you're in that place, then maybe the Lord's brought you here today to have a conversation with a brother over coffee or over lunch and say, you know what that Brit said earlier, I'm really struggling. I'm trying to go it alone and I'm hurting and I need you to pray for me and I need you to speak the gospel into my life and I need you to ring me in a week and tell me how I'm doing. And, and if a brother says that to you, then you're going to do it, aren't you? Because you know how hard it is. Because the farm hand is not the farmer. See, the Bible uses the language of farmer, but just as elders in the church, we're shepherds, but we serve under the shepherd. The sense in which we are farmers is that we serve the farmer. That's why I've called us farm hands, um, because I kind of like that, that picture. We are not the farmer. Um, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. I guess many of us will be familiar with these verses. They're a great promise. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. I find that interesting, that the Lord thought it worth spending time in the villages. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. Isn't that encouraging? We are not in charge of the field. We are simply responsible to, to pick up our scythe and bring in what he has apportioned to us. And if you are lonely in your labor, then here is the most beautiful command. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. I was lonely in my labor, and he has sent me three elders, one who's come up from within the church, the other two who moved purposefully to join me. And, and they, are, they are brothers who, who share my life, who have my back. They messaged me um, about an hour ago to say they were praying for us today. They, they are fellow laborers, and I am not lonely in my labor. It is beautiful to have guys alongside you. And, and God promises them. Isn't that an amazing promise? Because he's the Lord of the harvest and we're not. But there's another blessing to not being the farmer, which is that as you work with him, you learn from him. 
We all know the value of, of spending time as a, an intern or a, an associate pastor or whatever it might be, learning from a wiser, older man. And, and we get to learn from the farmer. Um, I'd like you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. I love the book of Ruth. It's a, a delightful book. Um, but I was struck when we preached through it uh, last year, I think it was, um, just a side point from Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through to 7. And as I read these verses, I want you to notice Boaz's laborers and how they act. It's quite interesting. So um, Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, God is good, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz comes and he treats Ruth with respect, with godliness, with compassion and with care. But what's interesting is Ruth has already met that in Boaz's field. She's a foreigner. She has no rights. And she's come to the foreman of the harvesting crew. And, and she's asked if she may glean in the field. Boaz has women gleaning behind the harvesters. He's got a, a good operation going. He's, he's working the field well. And the foreman says, yeah, sure you can. You glean, you work away. You see, he knows that his boss would want him to obey the law of God that said that the, the destitute could glean in the fields. He doesn't need to ask the boss. He's not afraid that Boaz will come and say, what, what are you doing? This is going to hit our margin." No, he knows that Boaz is godly. And so his instinctive response to Ruth is godly. He says, yes, you may glean. And Boaz charges the men not to touch her, but she has already worked all morning safely. They, they know what their boss is like. And it wasn't like that in Bethlehem. Um, later in the chapter, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, uh, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. You see, Boaz's men have become like Boaz. 
As he blesses them in the name of the Lord, they return the blessing. When, when the young women went home from Boaz's field, they would have been tired from a day's labor, but they would have had smiles on their faces. That wasn't the case for the women in other fields. When the men went home, they could look their mothers or their wives in the eye. The men in other fields would have lowered their eyes out of shame of what went on that day in the field. You see, Boaz's men got to become like Boaz. I think it's a beautiful picture. As we labor in the fields of the Lord, we become like him. Our instincts become his instincts. We, we respond to sin with compassion as well as judgment. We, we show mercy and love and kindness. We persevere because our Lord perseveres with us. We go after the lost sheep because the Lord goes after the lost sheep. Our instincts become like his. We become farmhands like the farmer. And we become those who understand sowing. We, we come to understand what it means to sow in the fields of the Lord. We, we grasp that the seed is good. It is the gospel of Christ, the very word of life. But that the soil, as we know, is variable. Let me read from Matthew chapter 13, um, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then skip forward to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. You see, we are not to assess the soil. It's not our place to try to work out which is the good soil. We can't see the rocks beneath the surface. We can't see where the roots of the weeds have been left in the soil. Our job is to sow and to sow and to sow. 
And it is discouraging. We see that the crops sprout up and we have great hope. And then some persecution comes. Some comment in the office. Some threat about promotion in the shop. And we see them just fall away. Or or we see the, the world lure them. Jesus is great, but that new truck is greater. And, and what the deceitfulness of riches. And, and we are simply to sow. And that is hard work. I remember reading a, a, a book. It was a novel when I was younger, and it was about a battle. And there was a great hero, a famous warrior. And the night before the battle, one of the, the, the young soldiers was asking this great warrior, how did you become this legendary warrior? And he replied, I didn't have the courage to be a farmer. He said, I can stand in a shield wall and I can wield an axe, but I didn't have the courage to sow again after a failed harvest. And I get that. You know, in a moment of... There's moments where where the battle is hard and we we realize now I need to make a stand for the Lord and it's going to cost me. And we we grip the shield of faith tight and we, we draw the sword of the Spirit. But when it is year after year after year of preaching and sowing and and leading the church out on mission and the harvest fails yet again, I think there is a far harder courage to stand up on Sunday and say, I don't know why no one was saved after that mission. But I know that we need to keep preaching the gospel. We need to keep sowing. Yeah, it was really sad. We lost three families and and they're going nowhere. Brothers and sisters, we need to go and sow the seed. We know that's hard. Many of us will have done that. And it comes with tears. It's easy to say it up here today. It is harder to live it month after month after month. And yet, we understand our job. We are not the Lord of the harvest. We are simply to sow faithfully. We understand the seasons. We won't turn there, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Now, if you stop and think about that, it's crazy. Say to a farmer, sow seed in season and out of season. So it's the middle of winter, sow. <laughs> He's going to go, you're crazy. I might as well just burn money. But we don't know the season. I think that's the point. Just as we don't know the soil, actually we don't know what season we're in. And we are called simply to sow the seed, to understand the seasons. There will be seasons of harvest and let's enjoy them. But often we are simply to sow and sow and sow and sow and pray that there will be a harvest. There are some of us in this room who will never see a season of revival, a season of great harvest, a season where where we preach and the church goes out and we baptize 20 people in the local creek the next Sunday. Many of us will not see that. I've not seen that. It's been ones and twos. 
I'd love to see it. Of course I would. We should. We should pray for it. But that is the Lord's decision, his timing, his harvest. I'm simply to sow and to sow and to sow. But what keeps us sowing is that we know that Christ will reap a harvest. And, and as we sow, we do so maybe discouraged, but, but not bitter, not cynical. Well, I'll sow the seed, but it's not going to do any good. No, we sow in faith because the gospel seed can produce fruit 30, 60, 100-fold. I, I love it that Billy Graham was a farmhand and he heard the gospel and that gospel seed produced fruit. We don't know what the Lord might do with our, with our seed. We don't know. And... And yet we do know that at the end of the age, when, when the harvest is brought into the barn, there will be a great multitude from every language and tribe and tongue and nation. We know that there will be 21st century Oregon voices in that crowd because you sowed seed and Christ gave growth. And that is the day when we will receive our wages, when we will see Christ face to face, and when we will see those there who go, if you hadn't stuck at it, if you hadn't put your hand to the plow and kept on plowing and kept on sowing, you know what, I wouldn't be here. Pastor, thank you. Brother, thank you. Sister, thank you. That, that is our wages. And we will get them on that day. I wanted to finish with, with the song of the sower, Psalm 126. And I think as rural pastors, we, we need this song. It's one of the songs of a sense. It's written in the past tense, but I believe it is also prophetic and speaks to the day of the Lord's return and helps us understand what we do until that day. Psalm 126, a song of a sense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall, bring, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The Lord wept over Jerusalem. And if we weep as we go out into the harvest field of the Lord, bearing seed for sowing, then we are in good company. We go out with the farmer. 
We go out to where he is laboring, where he has shed his blood, that from that blood a mighty harvest would grow. And it is right that we go out with tears because we are to take up our cross. And it is a hard calling to be a Christian in the harvest field of the Lord. It is immensely costly. It will take everything we have and we will weep. And as we do so, we will find that it is Christ's hand on our shoulder. And it is him who is strengthening us to turn our hands back to the plow. It is him who is giving us the seed And it is Christ who will come. And on that day, we will look at the harvest and he will wipe away the tears with his nail-marked hand and we will shout for joy. There will be no more tears, no more weeping. The old order of things will have passed and we will rejoice and we will say the Lord has done well. And our hearts will break in amazement as he says, you were a good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are weak. You know the suffering and the sin in each heart in this room. And you know the tears that we shed over our families, over our friends, over the churches we serve, over the lost in our villages and small towns. Father, we pray that you would set before us such a vision of Christ and of the day of his return that our hearts would would fill with joy alongside the tears. That we would be those who despite the tears go out and sow again. That we would be those who do not cower in our beds after a failed harvest, but in the strength of your spirit, plow up the soil and sow the seed. And when it fails, plow up the soil and sow the seed. Father, we cannot do that in our strength. There is nothing in us that can do that. And yet by the blood of Christ and the gift of the Spirit, we ask that you would do that in us and through us. That on that day, there would be thousands from rural Oregon, Washington, the other places that we're from, who would sing the songs of Christ, that we might shout for joy and say, Lord, you have done great things. Amen.